are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. The NBDA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to Associate Member Bike Exchange for their continued support of the NBDA and retailers at large. BikeExchange.com is the world's leading bicycle marketplace. Across eight countries, Bike Exchange prides itself as being the one-stop destination to buy, sell, and find everything bike. Since 2007, Bike Exchange has fueled the passion to ride by making it easy to buy and sell online. They connect with consumers everywhere to find, research, and buy all their related cycling needs through their marketplace. They also support and connect hundreds of retail bike stores and brands throughout the world. Bike Exchange is committed to helping people find the right cycling product in a single location and is considered the online destination for all things bicycles. Connecting your retail location to Bike Exchange is free and you pay a commission only on what you sell. Join Bike Exchange today and you'll receive a free one-year membership to the Professional Bike Mechanics Association and a free copy of the NBDA Cost of Doing Business Report. This membership and research has a combined value of $750, and it is being provided free of charge to bike retailers that join Bike Exchange today. Learn more at bikeexchange.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retailer Radio, brought to you by the NBDA. I'm Sherry Rosenbaum, and your guest host today. As an advocate for getting more people on bikes, I started a blog called Sunflowers and Petals. I'm also a contributing writer for RoadBikeRider.com and Brain Magazine. Thank you for listening. I am so happy that you are here. If you are a first-time listener, be sure to check out all the previous episodes. Please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcasts. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycling industry, dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. Today's guest is Brian Hans, co-founder of Bike Index, a 5013C nonprofit with a universal bike registration service. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk to you today. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I just have to share a little story before we get going and how I found out about Bike Index. So several years ago, we were vacationing in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and we went for dinner and we had our fat bikes on the back of my car on a hitch rack and they were locked and we came out of the restaurant and that sinking feeling when you see an empty bike rack. (laughs) So needless to say, we called the police, they did a report. I kind of went into, I would say, revenge mode. I don't know how how else to describe it. And I got online and I posted pictures of our bikes. Thank God we had loads of pictures of them. I posted to several Facebook by cell groups and then also notified bike shops in La Crosse and surrounding areas. I just wanted to make these bikes so hot that these wouldn't be able to unload them quickly. And then when I got back to Chicago, I wrote an article about my experience because I, I was starting from square one. What, what should I do when my bike's stolen? And I wanted to educate others. And as I was doing some research, I came across Bike Index for the first time. And I just was really surprised I never had heard about your organization. So 
we come full circle here and I'm thrilled to be able to interview you. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Bike Index, how the database works, and is it globally or strictly U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because your, your story parallels. A lot of people don't find out about us until they need us. The sort of arc of our last since inception, since 2013, has just been sort of getting the word out uh, and trying to get people in the system before a bad thing happens to them and sort of getting them to check out the boxes before they are robbed or, or have, a, have a bike stolen. From the top, our core thing is bike registration and recovery. We are just a nonprofit open source place for people to document their bikes and their bikes provenance and their details just in case anything ever, ever should happen to them. You know, we always joke about it like we're just a bunch of bike nerds who are also code nerds and tech nerds. And we saw all of these gaps in the problem. I was, I was working on purely on stolen bikes only. I only cared what happened to bikes when they were stolen and where they went and who was selling them and how they were fenced. And then my co-founder, Seth Herr, was working in bike shops and he was sort of having the opposite experience. He was, you know, they would sell a bunch of bikes and then a certain number of those people would come back to the shop and say, oh, my bike's been stolen. And they'd have to like pull out all this paperwork. And it was just, it was a huge pain. I was concerned with what was happening after they were stolen. And he was concerned with, well, can we just get these into a system beforehand? It makes no sense for us to sit here and and go through paper invoices uh, every time this happens. This is ridiculous. So... We met and just sort of realized we were both working on the same problem, just two parts of the same problem. And we we joined forces in in 2013. And it was truly one of those things where, you know, the sum was greater than the parts. The the minute we sort of merged our ideas and our our technology, every number went through the roof. And it has always shocked me how good this actually works. (laughs) A bunch of bike people with a database and website and some technology, it, it blows my mind how successful this is. You know, we've done a lot of the Bread and butter is, you know, if you have a bike or bikes, you can whip out your phone right now, go and register. It's free. We don't charge anything. We don't market to you. We don't sell your information. You'll literally never hear from us again, except, you know, if that bike gets stolen or if that bike is stolen and you don't even realize it, which happens quite frequently these days. We have such a large network of users and that which range from bike shops, to cyclists, to clubs, to schools, to law enforcement, to cities, to mechanics, to just anybody that comes in contact with a bike. And I cannot tell you the number of times that we have recovered a bike even before the owner was aware it had been stolen, simply because we had the foresight to get it in the system and, and have some sort of way for someone to just do a quick check and say, hey, wait a minute, this, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Or we arrested this guy last night and he's got a truck full of stuff. He's got 50 bikes in here. Like, who, you know, whose bikes are these? We're global. We're all over the place. And we're, I'm in America and most of the principals are in America, but we have Canadian partners and, you know, we just did this huge thing in Mexico. So we have a lot of Mexican users now. We have some European partnerships. You know, one of the most amazing things for me is when, you know, a bike gets found in New Zealand by a bike index user and I've never even done zero work on the ground there. We've had recoveries all over the place. There's nothing preventing anybody, you know, from like, you know, somebody in Luxembourg can log in right now and register their bikes. There's nothing that stops them from doing that. Um, Share some stats with me on how many bikes are registered, how many yeah, bikes absolutely. are recovered, kind of thing. Um, I pulled these this morning. As of this morning, we have almost 760,000 bikes registered. Of those, about 107,000 are stolen. To this date, we've recovered 10,325 of those bikes. We put that value at about $17.8 million. And the reason we know this is because we ask, we, we track prices very, very aggressively. Anytime somebody registers a bike or anytime a bike is coming in, we, we know how much that bike is worth. 
And during the recovery process, we asked victims, what was that bike worth? And we're able to use this to sort of create a baseline for, you know, what a quote unquote, what the single bike worth these days. And it's been funny because, you know, I've been doing this for a really long time and, and watching that number creep up. You know, average bike value, your average commuter was about five, six years ago, it's about $1,200. Mm. But with the introduction of e-bikes, we've seen that quote unquote baseline bike value just go higher and higher and higher. $4,000, $5,000, you know, even $8,000 e-bikes at the higher end are not uncommon. And they make up just such a huge chunk of the market these days. We've watched our sort of quote unquote median value creep upwards. And right now it's hovering at about $1,700. Are you finding one type of bike is being stolen over another? No. I mean, we find reasons why thieves may prefer an e-bike over a regular bike for sure. But in all honesty, they'll take whatever they can get. It's funny because we, you know, we have our hands in so many recoveries and we have so much intelligence coming in about who steals them, what they do with them, and why they take them. And like, e-bikes are just, you know, they're as useful to thieves as they are to, you know, everyone who loves e-bikes. You steal a regular bike, that's great. You can get around town. But you steal an e-bike, you can go 40 miles at 20 miles an hour. It's super fun. You know, you can lug all this cargo. And like, its resale value is just so much more. So if you're looking, you know, if you're looking at a rack with two bikes on it, and you're looking at like a regular Surly and then a, a like an e-bike, any thief is going to look at that e-bike and say, that's the one I'm going for because it, it's worth more. It's fun. <laughs> it's bigger. It's faster. You know, even if I can't get rid of the bike, I can get rid of the battery, which are also quite expensive. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. The guy that they caught the guy that stole our bikes and never got mine back, but my boyfriend's was recovered. He just yeah. wanted a quick 50, hundred bucks yeah. for his drug problem. That is incredibly common for sure. You know, we're now at the point that we've, we have, been doing this for so long that we sort of see the entire spectrum of, of who's taking them and why they're taking them and what they're doing with them. One of the other stats I didn't get to is we, we have over 1,300 partner organizations. And that can be everyone from bike shops to you know universities to individual buyers to people who just run cycling programs at their business or city. We just get a lot of information and tips and data and intelligence and just sort of a we get a very very big picture of the entire ecosphere ranging from individual victims to what they have to say about it to what cops have to say about it to what insurers have to say about it to what you know manufacturers have to say about about the issue we've just been at it so long we just have a really good top-down view of the whole quote-unquote theft ecosystem well let me segue into like i live in the Chicago area. And like in one week, five bike shops were broken into. And from what I'm reading, this is a common occurrence throughout the United States. And actually up in Wisconsin, cargo bike shop was broken into and seven cargo bikes were stolen. So it's definitely not one person stealing a bike and riding away. You got to need a huge truck to, to steal seven cargo bikes. So what is driving the increase in break-ins and is it a supply chain and pent-up demand that, or what is causing this? Yeah, it's, it's a couple of factors. We talked about this a lot during the last two years have been just so weird and upside down for everybody with, with COVID and lockdown and, and whatnot. Since that began, I, I, I like to say like 2020 and 2021 were just the completely most ridiculous years we've ever seen by any metric, metric we track be it numbers stolen, numbers recovered, the size and scope of, of robberies. When lockdown hit, it was like, I've been lucky to be sitting here at my home in Portland, still working and working on bikes and, and watching this whole thing unfold. And it's, it's weird now to talk about it in 2022. 
But, you know, when lockdown hit, like a lot of stuff happened really fast. Like, you know, nobody wanted to be on a bus. Nobody wanted to be on a train. You know, nobody was going to work. It, it just, everything was upended so quickly. And, you know, one of those weird byproducts, which is bikes and the desire for bikes just went through the roof. Not only for, you know, the utilitarian use of just getting from point A to point B without being crammed on a bus with, you know, 80 other people, but also for recreation. It was like, you know, one of those few things that you could do and it, and it was safe to go do. So, you know, really quickly, we saw like every bike shop sold out <laughs> you know, instantly. Great for them. The supply and demand equation just got completely tipped in one direction. And we had the shipping issues, bikes, supply chain issues sort of exacerbated that whole problem. Because of that, bikes as an object just became so much more valuable. Bikes that were sitting in somebody's basement that may have been worth 500 bucks were suddenly worth 700 bucks because where else are you going to get a bike? There was a lot of police drawback on do you remember those days that like no you know nobody knew how covid worked like no, you know there was still a big question mark like how do you get in you know most police agencies were told like look unless somebody's bleeding like we're not going to go to that call stolen bike you're on your own right. <laughs> you know robbery you're on your own like we, we just we've been told not to interact you know as much as we can because it's like the first three months of covid and nobody knows how this works and it, and it just sort of combined into this terrible we just started seeing a lot more shop robberies, organized crime robberies, you know, guys stealing trucks and ramming them into shops. We have bike shops pop up on a Monday morning and list, yeah, here's the 60 bikes that got stolen from us last night. You know, that's our third robbery this month. It was just a lot of factors combined at the same time. Everybody wanted them. They were suddenly worth more money. There was a lot of drawdown in policing. And boom, you've got <laughs> a terrible... A terrible situation. And of course, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. The sort of I crime, I think, just in general on it because suddenly nobody was working. And I, I think that certainly contributed to the problem. Yeah, like a perfect storm. Yeah, it, it was really, you know, this year, I was talking to somebody like, our numbers this year are, it's the first time they feel normal again because 2021 and 20, 2020, everything was just so outlandishly terrible. <laughs> you know, it was every single morning I, I was just approving, you know, twice as many bikes and hearing all these stories. And, and this year it like, finally feels like things are calming down a little bit. Yeah. So let me ask you this with all the thefts and everything, is there a task force or a centralized database for law enforcement that they can leverage and attempt to track stolen bikes and arrest those responsible for stealing? I mean, yes and no. And this could be a real long conversation, but I'll try to make it really short. Law enforcement agencies do have their own databases for stolen stuff. Right. But what you'll find is they don't work that great. They're like, they all were built in the seventies. <laughs> like they don't support things like pictures or, you know, they just, they're real balkanized from state to state or city to city. And, you know, they're not written for bikes. They're written for insert object name here, be it cars or guns or jewelry or, you know, it's a very generic depending on what city you're in, like you may get your five bikes stolen, but those bikes may never make it into that system. So I live in Portland. And one of the things we saw is, you know, it's, it's about a 20 minute drive to drive bikes from here to uh, Vancouver, Washington. And so guys would steal them here and pawn them in Vancouver, Washington, because I know that the computer systems were so bad that even if you did everything right, you, your bike's never going to pop up in the Washington system for like 90 days. They had this glorious window where they could deal your stuff here, drive 20 minutes, sell it there, and it's never going to pop up on the radar, even if you had done the right thing, just because of the way that the systems were slow. 
and we sort of routed around that problem. We, we found with a company that runs that pawn system and just gave them our data and they're one of our partners leads. We sort of nipped that problem in the bud because we just like, you know, every 20 minutes they pick up our data. So rather than waiting for the 90 days for that paperwork to trickle through police systems, you just put it in bike index and then 25 minutes later, it's in the, it's in the pawn system. So those systems do exist, but they're, they're real patchwork. They're real balkanized. They're maybe not as modern as you would like to think. They certainly are not tailored to bikes. And you know our system is entirely tailored to bikes. <laughs> because we are who we are, because we're a nonprofit and we're tech people, we sort of know a lot of people in the cycling world. We've been able to engage a lot of technology partners to, you know, we have point of sale registration. So when a bike shop is selling you the bike, as they're swiping your credit card, they just click a button, boom, your bike is registered. That's that's literally all the work you have to do. Or, you know, leads online, which is the national pawn system I was just talking about. No city police department is going to like sit down and say, how can we do this better with bikes? You know, it's just not in their purview to do that sort of forward thinking, but that's totally up our alley to do it. We've managed to find partners and people in that world who can say, oh yeah, we'd love to have your data. You know, we can, we can use it to do this, find bikes or register bikes or protect our users or protect our brand or, you know, do our users a favor about, you know, when they come in for a tune-up, we'll just go ahead and register for them and, and just proactively as a, as a freebie. Do most law enforcement know about your database so that if they do get a stolen bike, they know to take a look there? A lot of them do. You know, we've spent the bulk of our last 10 years just telling people about ourselves, trying to get them to use us. I would be shocked if, you know, most major law enforcement departments didn't already know about us. Okay. Um, we have several that are quote unquote official partners and we have tons that are unofficial partners. You know, that maybe there's a guy, there's one officer who's a, in the bike world. He sort of gets, he understands that if he comes across the bike, he can whip out his phone and, and check it this way. We do have a lot of official law enforcement partners and we, we give them, if you're a police organization in a city and you want to register bikes with bike index, you know, we can, we can sort of give you a dashboard that shows you like how many of you registered, how many recovered, you know, what dollar amounts are those, like who do they belong to? And they have a sort of a better ability to get at the data. For those situations, like I mentioned before, you know, they arrest somebody with a bunch of stolen stuff. He's got 50 bikes. Rather than have a truck warehouse those bikes and inventory those bikes and you know do the labor, one guy could just whip out his phone and say, "Okay, I'm going to find who these owners right now. I'm going to call them. They're going to come to me. They're going to come get this. We're going to get this done." Instead of doing all this labor of warehousing this stuff and inventorying this stuff, we have a number of law enforcement agencies that use us as official partners, but we always seek out. <laughs> our special sauce is always finding that one guy who's like a triathlete or, you know, he's a road biker, and but he's also an officer. And, and we sort of, you know, that's our foot in the door. We either through his own policing or through social media or other people in the cycling world, like bike shops who say, hey, you should check this thing out. And it's called Bike Index. It's free. And they're always blown away when they're like, wow, there's already 30,000 bikes in my city in a system. Like, why haven't I heard of this? Right. Yeah. Well, it was like me. I didn't, I didn't hear of it either. So. Have you heard of the Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards? The MBDA's Bicycle Retailer Excellence Award, or BREE, celebrates diversity and excellence in bicycle retail. With a focus on inclusivity, the program unites retailers, suppliers, industry organizations, advocates, and consumers in identifying and highlighting exceptional bicycle stores across North America. Recipients will be acknowledged and awarded not only for their excellence in retail, 
but their integrity, inclusiveness, spirit, and commitment to grow ridership. In 2021, over 300 retailers took part in the program. In 2022, one of them should be you. Visit the NBDA website to sign up now. There's no cost to participate in the program, and all retailers will benefit from completing the revised application featuring highly analytical questions related to the why of your business. Winners will be announced in July 2022, and an exciting awards program will be held live in person at the Big Gear Show in August. The Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards are supported by Marsh & McLennan Insurance Agency. Retailers, manufacturers, and suppliers work with Marsh & McLennan Agency for their insurance needs. With MMA's Bicycle Industry Insurance and Risk Services, you'll find the peace of mind that comes with coverage that is uniquely tailored to your risks. Led by Scott Chapin, an agent who knows the bicycling world and business and has the backing of the leading insurance brokerage in the world. Bicycle shop owners and those selling e-bikes face unique risks that many brokers cannot guide you on. MMA's bike shop specific coverage delivers coverage for the risks that you're likely to face. If you produce or manufacture bikes or bicycle related products, MMA can help deliver the liability protection you need to keep your personal and business operations and finances safe. The insurance side of this industry is complicated, and many insurers don't totally understand the mechanics and risks involved. MMA has been working in this space for more than a decade and has built a national reputation. Find out more online at marshmma.com. Let's talk about this report you published because I I could talk forever on this subject here. (laughs) And unfortunately, we have a limited time. But you published about stolen bikes coming from Colorado and finding their way across the border to Mexico. And the story is like, fascinating and infuriating to me (laughs) yeah i mean i'm right there with you (laughs) yeah in short for your listeners that haven't heard about this so our bread and butter is just sort of helping victims registering bikes connecting the dots helping victims helping people who find bikes connect it's it's not very big picture over the last almost a year and a half we did get into a, a big picture investigation where we were tipped off to a seller in Juarez, Mexico, who had just an extraordinarily large number of bikes that were all originating from the Colorado region. So we um, did some digging and spent about a year cataloging and capturing and, and cross-referencing and identifying all the stolen bikes that this one particular seller had and quietly working in the background to try to engage law enforcement and um, even Facebook, where he was was sensing these bikes and try to do something about this guy. And long story short, the Colorado AG completely sort of parallel track. They they announced a bunch of indictments, I want to say in November, of a crew of guys that were stealing trucks and ramming them into bike shops and uh, basically organized crime. You know, they would target a shop, they would ram a truck into it, they would steal all the bikes. And those bikes wound up being the bikes that we were seeing pop up in Mexico. So they were it was sort of parallel evolution. We were looking at one end of the problem and, and the Colorado AGs is sort of already on the other end of the problem. And we published a massive article about, you know, everything that we saw, all the evidence, all the bikes we had matched, most of the bikes we had matched. We published a database of about I think it was fifteen or sixteen thousand individual images of over like eleven hundred bikes in this guy's sales because we knew that there were other victims out there that that would find their bikes in that guy's trove. And we just said, look, this has always been one of those weird 
urban legends. We've always heard people whisper, oh, bikes are going to Mexico, but you know, nobody's ever quantified it. Nobody's ever proven it. Nobody's ever put a dollar amount to it. Nobody's ever reclocked like how fast a bike stolen in Colorado would, would end up for sale in Juarez. And it, you know, it was like two weeks and shocking. We also collected a ton of data on what is your $5,000 bike worth on the black market slash gray market? Like, are they getting top dollar? Or is it going 50%? Like, you know, how much money are they making? We just collected a, a massive amount of data, put it into a Google Docs, put all these pictures online and published it and just said, look, this is, we're not cops. We're not Interpol. We're not like, we have almost no ability to affect any change here, but we want to let everybody know <laughs> this is what's going on. And here's a bunch of victims and here's a bunch of dollar amounts. And here's this guy. And, you know, there's other guys like him. And in the end, a ton more victims came out of the woodwork and, and we added a bunch of more bikes that, you know, we'd never heard of to because they read the article or heard about the article and found their bikes and then contacted me. But One it expanded the- outside of Colorado, right? The thefts. And going to Mexico. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the craziest thing was, you know, we had other bike shops who also reached out to us and said, well, look, you know, we're in Texas or we're in Utah. And, you know, we read your article and we looked and guess what? We found some bikes here. And the, the guy we were tracking was almost exclusively Colorado based, but there were other guys like him doing sort of the same thing, you know, a region locked Facebook page, which means you can only see that page if you're in Mexico some sort of branding or a brand name, lots of photos. Their marketing was kind of this, they're, they're, it's, it's kind of the same guy, you know, ad nauseum. And we just had this flood of intelligence about, well, go look at this shop and go look at this guy. And, you know, I was robbed too. I live in Albuquerque. All my bikes are here. And, and it just opened this whole crazy can of worms that, you know, even, even to this day, we're still dealing with. And it's a fascinating read. I'm going to shut up now because I could go on forever. But you know, No, it's it, a fascinating it, it, story, so. <laughs> yeah. But it is infuriating. I mean, I, you know, all those shops that we talked to, all those victims that I talked to, all, all those people, you know, they'll, they, they'll never get closure. They'll never be made whole. And to this day, that guy is still operating. He's still selling bikes right now. And that's been one of the most depressing things about this is that despite our mountain of evidence and despite this investigation by the Colorado AG and despite having numerous conversations with people at Facebook, both before, during, and after we published on this guy, Facebook refuses to remove him from their platform. I literally don't know what it takes to get them to do their damn job and remove a bad dude from their platform who's been caught selling stolen goods. It just blows my mind. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but it is really... It's a refrain we hear a lot that these, you, you know, these big platforms like Facebook Marketplace and OfferUp is another terrible offender. Even when you point out to them, like, look, here's a bad guy. Here's the proof. Here's the victims. Here's the police report numbers. Here's the jurisdictions. You know, here's the dollar amount. They just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, yeah, too bad. Sorry, we're a platform. Not my problem. Um, you know, and that guy, crazy. you know, that guy's posting bikes right now as we speak. He's still selling bikes and some of which we we know are are stolen from Colorado. And there's no help from the Mexican government? That was not an avenue we pursued. I don't even know how we would go about pursuing that. We talked to a pretty significant amount of law enforcement on this side. And without getting into it, if they weren't able to get traction, I don't know how the hell we were going to get any traction. Yeah, I'm just Uh, thinking that the U.S. Attorney General, you know, instead of just the state going to the U.S. Attorney General, but... 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I don't think I can answer that question. But at, at no one point... Did I want to get these people. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, trust me, you are not the only yeah. one. You will have to take a number for for that one. It was hard enough just sort of running our operation and capturing the data and, you know, let alone trying to get through a language barrier and figure out, you know, who the hell do you call in Juarez to talk about stolen bikes. That That angle was never an angle I thought we could pursue. Had I more people, more time and better resources, sure, maybe on next round, that's something we'll look at. But our experience was for months, we would we would match a bike, find a victim, from that victim, get a jurisdiction and finally get a phone number. And we would call an officer in like some small town outside of you know Denver. And the minute you said Mexico, you could just hear them laugh and say, ah, well, you're on your own, bro. Like, you know, that's all I needed to hear. And, and, you know, they were, you know, they're not jerks about it. They're just, you know, they're acknowledging like, look, you know, we're local cops. We're not Interpol, man. Like, we, you know, we're not, no one's going to drive down to Mexico to chase this single bike. Like, it's great that you found it, but like, this is, this is way outside of our jurisdiction, which is just, you know, that, that's one of the things we talk about in this article is that the, this particular model of, of theft and fencing is just, I mean, we are like the only organization, we're the only people who could have uncovered it in the first place because we have the data and we had the victims and we have the, some of the technical abilities to do some of the weird stuff that we did to, to look at this guy's listings. It's not like there's a cop sitting in Denver saying, I am going to open up Facebook and look at bike sales in Juarez and Aguas Calientes and Jalisco and see, you know, nobody's doing that, but this community is doing that. You know, cyclists are doing that. And turns out once you start doing that, finding stolen bikes is like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> and it's just, you know, but I'm still left with the question, like, well, what do you do now? You know, yeah, sure. Some guys in Colorado got busted, but like, you know, this, this, the other end of that equation. There's more right behind. Yeah. Them. There's yeah. 10 more of those guys. So it's a fascinating read, probably infuriating if you're a theft victim or a bike shop or, or in the industry, but it does, you know, we just wanted to draw attention to the fact that like, yes, look, this, this sort of thing is, larger and more organized and and sometimes, you know, 10 times crazier than anybody ever anticipated. And here's a giant, you know, one of many, many examples of that backed up by data and numbers and screenshots and, you know, victim report numbers and, and as much proof as we could, could stick on the thing. So what, what does a, a nice bike go for? Do they... Is it pennies on the dollar? Or no, it, that was that was one of the shocking things. So we took, I think it was a transition that it's like a five thousand dollar bike. Let's just say you know MSRP here in America was, was five thousand ish, and we found a you know if you were to try to buy that bike used through you know somebody like the Pros Closet, we found a dollar amount, and we found that the sellers in Mexico are like eighty five to ninety percent on the dollar. So they, they weren't taking a huge cut. We, you know, clearly we don't know what their overhead is. We don't know what they paid to get it there. We don't know how much they paid for it. But, you know, that transition was selling for about 85 to 95% of what you would get for it in America. All this data is in our article. You can go look at it. So if you... Yeah, we'll put a link to it in the, the podcast. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, it was less, but it wasn't like significantly less. It was just a little bit, a little bit cheaper. You know, I was just talking with a guy on Instagram today who, after this article came out, we just had this flood of Mexican cyclists reach out to us and just say, man, you know, I read your article. That's crazy. We hate these dudes too. I own a shop outside of Mexico. We've been hit five times. And like, you know, we, we tracked our bikes to, you know, not this guy, but a guy that's exactly like this guy. And and it was one of the big questions in when we started this was, 
is the buying public down there, you know, quote unquote, in on it? And they all know it's stolen. <laughs> or are they just getting duped because these guys are, you know, they have professional Facebook pages and they look like businesses. And it, and it turns out it's more the latter than the former. You had a lot of people who had bought from that guy pop up angry and, and, you know, getting the knives out for him because they were pissed off. They got sold a stolen bike. And I had a, one, a guy spotted one today and was messaging me on Instagram. And I just, I've been back and forthing with him all day. He found one and I just said, what do you think about this? Like, how do you think all these bikes keep winding up in Mexico? Is it organized criminals? Is it regular flow? I don't really know about your scene. So, you know, I'm asking you, <laughs> like, I don't know what, you know, mountain biking is like in Aguascalientes. Like, tell me about it. He wrote me and says, you know, I, I think it's a regular flow. The market is increasing. All the sellers in Facebook are much cheaper, but Mexico has such a great market for high-end bikes. Not a whole lot of Trek stores out in Aguas Calientes. Like, so if yeah. you know, if you want to ride, if you want to get a bike, you're almost stuck exclusively dealing with guys like, like this guy on Facebook. And if he's a little cheaper than everybody else, that's just a, a motivating factor. Well, let's segue into another topic, but similar in retrieval. So there's talk about the government mandating bin like codes for bikes, I guess. So how does that differ from a serial number? I'm not. 100% familiar with the bin like codes for bikes thing. The only governmental thing that I've been tracking has been some of this movement to push the online sellers like OfferUp and Facebook to start record keeping, sort of stem the flow of fencing, basically, that's, you know, counterfeiting and fencing that's happening on their platform. I know Colorado had a bill, I'm not sure if it passed or not, that sort of mandated some record keeping by those agencies. But to sort of answer your question, you know, the, there is no quote unquote standardized serial for bikes. It's all over the board. Each manufacturer can have something slightly different. They can have different serial formats. I'm not so sure that standardizing a serial is not the silver bullet to this problem. Well, the other thing is with carbon, you can't like engrave it. It's a label. And I've had yeah. on my carbon bike, the label has fallen off. Yeah, there's definitely then, some technical problems for really high-end stuff, you know, like carbon. Carbon, of course, is going to be a problem. Yeah. You know, what's weird is like our biggest hurdle used to be finding them. Now we find them all day. We, we find too many of the damn things. The, the hard part is what do you do after you found them? And that has sort of become our... Once we became really good at finding them and we have this massive army of people out there who can find them, the harder part is, well, now what? Do you chase it? Can you get a cop, a cop to help you chase it? Do you get others to chase it? Do you track this guy? Like, how are you going to go get it back? You know, I'm not sure standardizing a serial number really changes that equation at all. Uh, you know, I don't care if I find it with a six digit serial number or the 12 digit serial number or a QR code, or as we often get, no serial number at all. It's just that the person who owned the bike customized it to the point that they can say and prove, you know, with 100% efficiency. Like that bike is my bike. And the reason I can say so is look at this scratch, look at this dent, look at this configuration, look at this ding, look at this sticker. Or in some cases, it literally has my name painted on the frame. <laughs> you know, like some of these more egregious. One of our biggest problems is that, you know, these online platforms, they don't mandate serial. They don't mandate. There are no checks in place. Coming up with a bigger, better serial number means nothing if I can just open up my phone and list stolen bikes on offer up and no one's asking me for the serials. Let's talk a little bit about tracking. You know, I've heard people put 
a Apple AirTag on or Tile or some other Bluetooth device. But they all seem to have limitations because there's only a certain amount of like tracking range. Are there any recommendations that you have or is there any product you came across that worked really well? Yeah, it's it's funny because like Van Moots, the manufacturers, they their bikes actually have trackers in them. There's a company in the EU that makes small trackers that can actually be embedded in e-bike motors. So it's not like an add-on. It just comes baked into the motor. There's a really impressive product coming to the market called Max Tracker that we're looking at, which is a, a tracker that's hidden in, in a... I won't say what it is, but it's a, a common looking thing that you would stick on your bike. It's funny because like since the introduction of AirTags, I'm now sort of watching... AirTag related recoveries that are coming into the bike index and sort of keeping an eye out for, you know, how many people are putting AirTags on their bikes and how many of them are, are, are coming back. But the, the problem is almost the same. It's great that you can track that tag, but you're going to track that tag to a sketchy building with sick dudes standing outside and you don't know what floor it's on and you don't, you're not quite sure safety wise if you want to go into this building and like, you know, tracking the thing and finding the thing is not the problem. It's what do you do next? That's what we see a lot. You know, we, <laughs> our almost daily thing is, you know, someone gets broken into or robbed or their business is broken into, their bike is stolen. 24 to 48 hours later, the bike is posted on OfferUp. Someone puts two and two together because we have people out there that are looking every day and, and sort of cross-referencing these sketchy bike sales on OfferUp to Bikes and Bike Index. The owner gets an email, hey, I think I found your bike. And hey, based on this guy's pictures and some of the, the Kung Fu that we do in the background, like, I think he's in this RV. I think I've dealt with him before. Or I kind of know who this guy is. Like, we know where he is. We know who he is. Like, but I wouldn't go there alone. <laughs> you know, he's a messed out dude with a baseball bat and two dogs. Like, I, I'd be really, you know, and a lot of people have to make a conscious decision. We try to provide them with as much information as we possibly can on who the person is and what their record is and maybe some things that we know about that bad person before because we've seen them before. So we try to give victims as much info to either take that to cops and, and use it as leverage to, to get assistance, whereas before they may have been blown off, or decide, look, I'm just going to walk away from this one and take the loss. Or no, I'm going to go chase this thing. I'm going to get some friends and we're going to go get this bike back. And that's a whole other crazy long conversation. But a common thing that will happen is we've been doing this for so long and we know so many people that chase bikes and that we, we sort of know like, oh, that seller is this guy. Here's his name. Here's his address. The name of the officer who got him last time was so-and-so and here's his number. Or, you know, that guy killed a man in 1986. You probably don't want to go get your bike back. <laughs> like you might want to, you might want to let this one go. We are able to do a lot of things in the background to figure out who some of these people are. People who chase bikes do a lot of really interesting things to get those bikes back, is all I can say. And sometimes it's as simple as calling that guy's mom and saying, hey, we're going to have your son arrested again unless he brings that bike back. He's got two hours, you know, and just hang up. And that'll motivate the guy to bring the bike back. <laughs> or there's a thousand and one stories like this. What we try to do is just amass as much information about the sellers and the people that have them and the bad guys that are, are selling them. So maybe we don't get them this first time, but the third, fourth, or fifth time, we have a bigger picture about who they are and, and where they are and, and how they operate. And we can advise those victims accordingly. Just a couple more questions. Bike Index and MBDA announced a partnership a, a year or two ago 
where bike shops could automatically register bikes at a point of sale via free integration with Lightspeed and Ascend Retail. Tell me more. And then also, if we've got some of these smaller bike shops that are listening and they don't use these POS systems, what do you suggest they do? Yeah, absolutely. Point of sale system, uh, like this is one of my favorite things in the whole universe because we tried for so long to get people to use our system. And we used to have a, if, it, if we got 50 bikes in the system in a day, it was a great day. Like when we were starting out, it was like, yay, we hit 50. You know, now because we've integrated into these point of sale systems, 500, 600 bikes will come in a day and no one's doing any labor. It's just coming straight from a computer. That is how you solve this problem. That is how you get this done. So integrating with point of sale systems is just one of the most fantastic things we've done. And it has borne so much fruit. I can't tell you how many millions of dollars that has in bikes that has recovered just because someone can click a checkbox and click a button. <laughs> so yeah, so two big systems we do are, are Lightspeed and Ascend. They were the most sort of approachable and, and user-friendly. We're definitely open to working with other systems or bike shops that are a little more lower tech. We have a lot of low-tech stuff ranging from, you know, we can put stuff on your website, we can give you printed materials, we can give you materials that you put in the purchase document documentation. We can give you, doesn't have to be a computer. We've had shops just send us Excel sheets, say, hey, these are these 100 bikes I did this month, you want to put these in there. We found it's easier to automate than to get human beings to do things. So, you know, even, even if you put a little pamphlet in somebody's thing or you give them an option, they're probably not going to do it. We have simple things like, you know, branded cards that you can just write the serial number down and, and tuck that in to the purchase documentation. So if it does go missing later, the first thing they do is grab that packet when they bought the bike, serial numbers front and center right there. At least they have that on file. At least they can, can reference that. We have a lot of this written up on bikeindex.org under resources or news. Not everything has to be a high-tech solution, and we get that, but certainly the fastest, easiest way to get thousands of bikes in the system is to to tie into those computers, is to automate. Right. Well, great. Well, I know after this call, two things I'm going to do is register my new bike <laughs> and donate to your cause. And Thank being you. a non-for-profit, if somebody wants to support your efforts, um, where do they go to donate? Yeah, we would love that. Bikeindex.org slash donate. We're nonprofit. We're not making any money on this. We're just trying to keep the lights on. We we do corporate giving. We do matching. It's been really hard for me, especially this year, the last year. There's been some stuff that we've not been able to do simply because we didn't have the funds to task somebody with doing it. Things like this thing in Mexico, we, we were able to engage a bunch of our partners there. We probably had a dozen plus people in Colorado who probably burned two or 300 hours total helping. And that was just out of the good of everyone's heart. And a lot of them were motivated by the same sort of burning rage <laughs> as a theft victim. Had we had some funds and had we had some more more juice to make some things happen, we, we definitely could have. So we, we would love some support from, from both individual cyclists or corporations or industry folks. That'd be, that'd be amazing. Great. Well, happy to get the word out. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. Great information. Always great to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great. I, I can nerd out for hours about bike theft, but I know <laughs> lots of people would probably tune out at this point. I would really encourage everybody who's listening to this, go go check out bikeindex.org slash news and look up the article that is entitled Closing the Loop, 
just all about this Colorado to Mexico investigation. It's it's a very long read, but it's it's a wild ride. Great. So that's a wrap. I'm Sherry Rosenbaum, and I invite you to connect with me. Come on Bicycle Retail Radio and share your story with our listeners. I invite you to contribute to our outspoken blog, become a feature in our member spotlight, or lead a webinar. Lots of love in our industry. Lots of great webinars are coming up and member networking meetings. Be sure to check out all the great resources on the NBDA website. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. <music>